Today on In Good Faith, we are doing a book club as we do every single quarter, a discussion about a particular book. This one ties in though with our series on the area that is modern day Turkey and all of the different faiths and religions that are just there like archeological layers over the centuries. And they still show up. Even the old ones have influenced what's there today. And I am thrilled that we're talking about a book called Swallowing the Sun, the translation of work by the 13th century Persian poet Rumi. Here with me today are senior producer, Heather Bigley. Hello. And we also have two knowledgeable guests to join Heather and I. Rasul Sorkabi holds a PhD in geology from Kyoto University in Japan, as well as Master's of Science and Bachelor's of Science degrees from Jammu University in India. He's conducted geological studies in India, Nepal, Japan, Borneo, the Rockies, and the Great Basin of the American West. There's a whole other podcast for another day right there, those adventures. He's also constructed a global database on sedimentary basins and He's currently a professor at the University of Utah. He reviewed this book, Swallowing the Sun, for the journal Interreligious Insight. Rasul, thank you so much for being here thank today. Thank you for having me here. With us also is Kevin Blankenship, an assistant professor at Brigham Young University in the Department of Asian and Near Eastern Languages, teaching Arabic, language and literature, Islamic civilization, and the Quran. He holds a PhD from the University of Chicago, an MA from UNC Chapel Hill, and a bachelor's from BYU. Under the aegis of the Fulbright program, he lived and conducted research in Morocco for a year. Kevin Blankenship, so glad you're here. Thanks, Steve. It's good to be here. I have to ask one initial question, Rasul. You have all of these amazing credits in petroleum geology, tectonics, basin, time, heat, structure, and fluid flow. So what are you doing reviewing a book of poetry? Well, I was born in Iran, and uh, Persian is the main language in that country. And uh, Rumi is one of the towering poets in Persian literature. So I have been interested in literature uh, since my teenage days. And um, after, even after I left uh, Iran, Back in 1979, uh, I kept up with uh, Persian literature, uh, specifically Rumi, for almost four decades, I would say, for three to four decades. And um, uh, also in 2007, I founded the Rumi Poetry Club in Salt Lake City. Um, so we have had uh, monthly meetings, uh, usually held at the uh, library, the public library over there. Um, I have translated uh, Rumi, um, some of his poetry, uh, written some essays about uh, Rumi. So uh, I guess it balances my mind <laughs> between science and uh, literature. Yeah, and I should follow up to say, because you read this in Persian, Right. And then you read these English translations we'll be discussing today. Do they somehow feel the same to you? Can the translation really capture all the nuance? Well, um, it depends on the translator and the poem. Um, I guess there can never be a perfect translation. So uh, having said that, sometimes... Even I learn about the Rumi poetry through translation, just because someone else, someone else has uh, processed it through a different language, different expressions. Yeah. So that makes sense, Kevin. I wonder if you can tell us who Rumi is, because it seems like he could have had a whole career as a poet, a whole career as a philosopher, another one as a spiritual mystic. Yeah. Where did he come from and fill us in here? Yeah, that's right. I think we're all still trying to figure out who Rumi is and <laughs> maybe even Rumi himself is trying to figure out who he is by uh, by engaging with poetry and, and other types of writing. Uh, he was a uh, he was a mystic. He was a thinker, as you said. Uh, he was, in fact, a legal scholar as well. Um, you know, came from the eastern part of the Islamic world, uh, left there, f his father... Uh, decided to move for professional and personal reasons. Um, this is the 13th century. There was a lot of um, economic and political instability, turmoil, but also opportunity that came with it. And so they moved further west to what we call today Anatolia or Turkey. Um, 
and, uh, and eventually settled in Konya in 1229 AD. Uh, and uh, Rumi lived there for 48 years. He died there in 1273, and that's kind of where he made his, uh, his name as a, as a thinker and a mystic. So how did you become aware of his poetry? Yeah, for for someone especially who not like Rasul, unfortunately, I didn't grow up with with Rumi as part of my cultural heritage, uh, and I'm so glad to have you know a guest like Rasul here to to Thank speak you. to that aspect of nice it. Of I think it's speaking of balancing your mind. It, it also balances how we talk about Rumi. So much of uh, the discourse, so much of the talk around Rumi is is academic in nature, and so for mm-hmm. someone to to come to it um, with an element of appreciation, I think is also uh, really valuable. I uh, I remember sitting in ninth grade biology, reading a book of uh, you know selections of Sufi poetry, and I don't I'm, I'm sure Rumi was in there. I don't have a, a recollection of having this really you know kind of spectacular moment with Rumi in particular, but just being interested in sort of mystical tradition and wondering what all this stuff was about. You know, they're talking about, I am you and you are me and, you know, God lives in me and I live in God and, 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 and sort of wondering, you know, how, how to approach that. That was sort of my first, uh, uh, my, my first encounter. And then later, you know, um, when I when I went to grad school for Islamic studies and, uh, and literature, I, um, you know, I, I re-encountered Sufi poets, mystical poets from the Islamic tradition, including Rumi, and uh, sort of reignited this passion with a little bit more uh, age, maybe not maturity, but, uh, you know, experience to, to, to bring with it that sort of helped me appreciate it even more. Before we dive into poetry and concepts, I'd like to maybe define what a mystic is, because I've spent some time thinking, I have my own little teeny definition, but I wonder if you have commentary on that. I want to hear what Rasul has to say about this first. What is a mystic or what is a Sufi? Um, Well, I think that is a mystical question itself, (laughs) right? Exactly. (laughs) We're on the right track. (laughs) We are on the right track. Um, Well, of course, uh, mystic uh, is an English word. And it goes back to Greek, you know, tradition, uh, mysterium, mystery, you know, silence, etc., but um, in Persian, uh, the word we use for mystic is arif. And Kevin would know uh, that because it's an Arabic word. And actually, it is a translation of another uh, Greek, ancient Greek word, uh, gnosis. Ma'rifa uh, or irfan means uh, gnosis. And arif is someone who Which knows. Is knowledge. It, yeah, yeah. But uh, inner knowing mm. rather than scientific or philosophical or... Or uh, even even knowledge of the unseen. Right. Um, you mentioned mystery before. Muostoria in, in Greek isn't like something unknown. It's something unseen, but unseen, that you can know, yeah. which is yeah. related That's to that. That's absolutely true. So uh, RF is someone who knows, but through heart, through the heart rather than processing through the logical mind. Well, you started a Rumi poetry club. Right. So there's got to be something about the heart. I'm wondering, what do you sense? What do you feel when you're reading these poems from so long ago? They're obviously speaking to you still today. I think that is the power of uh, any spiritual poetry. Not only Rumi, but any, any spiritual poet has that quality. Because really, spiritual poetry comes from the heart. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you try to make it, compose it uh, through logical you know, thinking. Uh, and in Persian, there's a saying that anything that comes out of the heart, it settles in someone else's heart as well. Mm. So I think that is the connection. Uh, and Rumi, for sure, uh, the word heart uh, in Arabic, qalb, in, in Persian, del, uh, this word itself uh, is frequently repeated in, throughout Rumi's poetry. So uh, he was, actually there was a, a documentary about Rumi's life, and the title was The Poet of the Heart. <laughs> mm. So uh, heart is where, as Kevin mentioned, uh, the unseen resides. So through the eyes, we can see what is visible, but what cannot be said, what cannot be seen, 
with the physical eyes resides in the heart. You know, we were in Konya and we were at Rumi's tomb uh, talking to different people. And we, we spoke with a woman uh, from, I think, Denmark who'd been living in Turkey for a while. And she said, you know, people come here to Rumi's tomb and they fall in love with Islam. Mm. They fall in love with the the transcendence and the mysticism and the love um, because of Rumi. Then they go out and they try to live Islam and they have a whole different experience right. because right. the day-to-day right. is not Rumi. It's not, you know, this connection that Rumi is teaching us about, right? right. But that was fascinating to me that— Rumi, for a lot of people, stands for a lot of Westerners, seems to stand outside of Islam. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's kind of impacted the translations from what we understand, right. the other English translations. So I kind of had a question for you guys. You, uh, Kevin, recommended to us, oh, you've got to read Rumi Swallowing the mm. Sun by Franklin Lewis. And then you, Rasul, you're the one who's written a review of it. So what what is it about this translation that really, you know, sort of— seems correct or accurate or authentic? Well, that was Kevin's choice, so <laughs> I think he's the right person to answer that. I'll just I'll just be brief about this. Um, first of all, uh, the translations were done by a uh, uh, who I, someone I consider a friend and a mentor, Franklin Lewis, went by Frank uh, to those who knew him, and he just uh, just recently passed away, not even a year ago, um, after a long a long illness, and so it seemed fitting, you know, just for that reason alone, to um, help people remember the name and work of a, a scholar, but not just a scholar, someone who really sort of lived or tried to live inside these poems and, and to bring them to, uh, to English reading audiences. One thing he talks about in the introduction to the book is he, he really is, he's cautious to, you know, make the translations literary so they're not just, you know, sort of academic trots, as we might call them, very literal, very wooden kind of, you can actually read them in English and they sound good by themselves apart from the Persian. But he's also very keen to um, to not let that be an excuse to erase Rumi's culture, his, uh, his, his religion, and even his language. And as you said, Heather, that's something that uh, unfortunately is, you know, some people have leaned too far into what we might call domesticating the, the Persian and, and the poems, making them very... Um, you know, bringing them a bit, a bit too far into sort of modern American idiom, and not letting some of the the apartness or strangeness of a different culture and different time speak through. Obviously, the the book is divided into sections, so we have right. like this is this is specifically religious poetry, and and that's not overlooked, right? The um, invocation of the prophet, the invocation mm-hmm. of God, the you know um, mm-hmm. the journey that the faith seeker goes on is very here and I think there's a lot of you know he does this nice work of noting when there's a quote from the mm-hmm. Quran right and, and when we've got a quote from maybe the Hadith or something so right. it, I think there's this wonderful work that he's done for us well what drew me to this book in the first place um, you see he had uh, another book a previous book I mean Franklin Lewis mm. uh, he, who passed away last year Um he had published a book uh, which is really a seminal work on Rumi, Rumi Past and Present, by the same publisher, One World in Oxford. Uh, that was seven or eight years before this publication, if I remember well. And then in 2007, which was the 800th anniversary of Rumi's uh, death, and that's actually when I also started the Rumi Poetry Club in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he decided to extract all of his po- poetry translations from that book and then include it in an in independent, separate volume. And, of course, he added that introduction, a new introduction. He uh, revised some of the wording, etc. So, uh, in a way, this is an offshoot of his previous mm-hmm. book, which was published on the 800th anniversary of uh, Rumi's death. Uh, but it's a great translate. Franklin Lewis is one of the few scholars who knew uh, he was, unfortunately, uh, because he passed away, who knew Persian literature, not only the spoken Persian, I mean, today's, uh, as you said, like uh, Persian idiom, but, but also the classical poetry quite well. 
So these are his own translations, and that's very important. These are not retranslations, right? Because there are some poets who retranslate or paraphrase, uh, you know, the original translation. So, uh, having said that, uh, he's also a scholar, so he pays much attention to uh, scholarly words sometimes. Um, but it's a great volume of uh, Rumi's poetry. This is an impossible question, but as you go through this book, when you're doing the review, can you pick out one or two that are most meaningful to you? Well, um, I think it's a difficult question because I really enjoy all of Rumi's poetry, uh, different occasions, you know, different moods. So it's very hard to for me to pick one. But... Um, and somehow, um, I knew you would ask this question. <laughs> somehow. <laughs> somehow, yeah. Um, you see, uh, Frank, uh, Frank Lewis, uh, when he, uh, so far as I know, his last lecture, public lecture on Rumi was five years ago. Oh, okay. 2018, just before the COVID. And uh, he himself in that prison, it was a PowerPoint presentation, uh, pre- uh, uh, presentation, he himself picked two poems from this volume to share with the audience. Mm. And one of them is, uh, I will read, uh, actually, it's a beautiful poem. It's on page 139. Exquisite Love. Uh, maybe, Heather, would you please read a few uh, lines from yes. it so that— I'll happily do that. So when I get to, oh, God, that's just being read at the end of the line. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And I have to say my husband's a poet. Oh. So he taught me how well how one reads American poetry, which is the longer the line, the slower you go. Mm, Did you know that? Mm. Or is that, a, is that a custom somewhere else? Short, short poetry know. you read— like this, oh, really? if it has short lines. Okay. Anyway, um, maybe the far. first uh, four lines, okay. because I'm going to read it in Persian. Kind of the quatrain. Oh, is that good? Okay. Nice. All right. Exquisite love. What exquisite love we have. Oh God, how fine, how good, how beautiful. Oh God, how warm, how warm this sun like love keeps us. How hidden, hidden, yet how manifest. Oh God. So, oh, God is the rhyme in this poem. You see, when we translate into, I mean, the room is put into uh, some other language, it's very hard to keep the rhyme, right? Uh, so, oh, God, Chodaya, oh, God. That, so, that's the rhyme. So, Zehi Eshq, Zehi Eshq, Kemarast, Chodaya. So, he has translated Zehi as exquisite. Mm. But it could be also just wonderful. I mean, you know, you can translate it in different ways. So, Zehi Eshq, Zehi Eshq, Kemaras, Chodaya, Che Naghz Ast, O Che Khub Ast, O Che Zibast, Chodaya, Che Garmim, Che Garmim, Az In Eshq, Che Khurshid, Che Penhan, O Che Penhan, O Che Peydast, Chodaya. It's a beautiful poem. And um, so this was one of... Uh, Franklin Lewis, uh, his own, you know, selection for that presentation. Of course, it goes on and on. But uh, I think these four lines show how important love was for Rumi. I mean, it, it, it's a, like common thread that runs through uh, the entire uh, volume of his, you know, poems, love. And um, so he was a master of the path of love, you know. And the and the word that is used in for love also ish is you know as you know an Arabic word yes. brought into Persian right. and there are many words for love in yes. the yes. Islamic and mystical tradition and ish in particular is the peak <laughs> rapturous love yeah. Yeah. Mm. Um, you know dizzying bewildered love um, you know this is not Rumi did not go halfway. When it came to <laughs> to yes. love of God or of or of Shams, uh, as a matter of fact, that's my next question. Because mm-hmm. these two characters, if I can call them that, yeah. show up in the poem. He, Rumi writes to the beloved, beloved, or mm-hmm. about the beloved. Who is that? And then, who is Shams? 
Yeah. Again, it's, it, it, you know, this is, this is one of the, uh, the mysteries, although, um, you know, uh, professor Lewis kind of reminded everyone that, you know, for a long time, people thought that Shamsi Tabriz was uh, a myth or a legend, someone who didn't really exist. We have Shams's writings now, uh, and we've had them, you know, for, for a couple of decades. And, and Professor Lewis was one of the people who um, sort of drew more attention to that so that we can pinpoint aspects of his life. Um, you know, Shams was a wanderer. He was a scholar, just like Rumi, um, searching always for truth, for enlightenment. It, it's an open question whether or not he actually found it. Um, you know, Rumi, I think, was was the closest he came. But uh, part of part of Shams's, you know, program, if you want to call it that, is to to always be searching because you're never complete. Um, also, there were some practical reasons why Shams eventually left uh, Anatolia, where he and Rumi had their, you know, their famous uh, their famous bromance. They he he caused jealousy among Rumi's family because with Sufi and, and sort of mystical communities in general, much of them were united through lineage. So, you know, in, in Rumi's case, his father was a scholar, but also something of a mystic and passed down that knowledge to Rumi, whom he right. saw as, as his successor. Um, and so knowledge stayed, this kind of knowledge, this kind of practice stayed within families and uh, and the presence of Shams disturbed that, and uh, and and eventually, you know, he was he he felt, you know, like he was being being pushed out, and saw that it was his his time to leave. So Rumi talks about this friend in in great detail, great admiration. It sounds like he maybe opened Rumi's mind to different concepts. What do you think? Yeah. Yes, that is correct. Well, Shams, uh, as Kevin mentioned, he was a wandering dervish. He was born uh, in the city of Tabriz in northwest Iran, and he left his uh, hometown when he was a teenager. Almost. So uh, he was in. He was a seeker. Uh, uh, he studied with several masters, but when he was probably when he was sixty or so, he went to Konya and uh, uh, met uh, Rumi. And in a way, you are absolutely right. He transformed Rumi. Yes, Rumi came from a mystical background, uh, highly uh, educated, but it was really Shams who uh, transformed him in a way that he became a poet. And not only a poet, who wants to write poetry for competition, but a dancing poet, you know, <laughs> someone. I mean, think about when when Rumi met Shams, he was uh, about 37 years old. So think about like, you know, in the 13th century, a scholar with hundreds of disciples and students, he starts dancing on the street, right? So... That was really the impact of Shams on Rumi. Uh, in Persia, some Persian scholars have said that it was like Shams removed a cap rock mm. from a volcano. <laughs> so wow. it was a, Rumi was like a, a, mm. a, a dormant volcano just waiting to be erupted. And that's exactly what Shams did to Rumi. And having said that, I really feel that uh, all of us should have some shams in our lives. <laughs> it, it's a privilege. It's a privilege. I want to dig deeper into that. <laughs> We're going to take just a short break. You are listening to In Good Faith. This is a book club episode. We're talking about the book Rumi, Swallowing the Sun, a translation by Franklin D. Lewis. We'll be back in just a moment. This is In Good Faith. We're talking in our book club episode about Rumi Swallowing the Sun, translated by Franklin D. Lewis. And our guests are Rasul Sorkabi and Kevin Blankenship. Rasul, just before the break, you were talking about that maybe we all need somebody like uh, Shams, who was kind of a, a catalyst in the life of Rumi. You right. said like a stone that came off a volcano and suddenly mm -hmm. let it all explode. Maybe we need some of that, each of us 
in our lives. In the context of of the 1200s, 13th century here, I'm just curious because I think we understand the poems in this book better with a bit of context and what the thinking was about maybe male relationships and friendships and God and women at the time. How is that different from today or what was it back then? Well, um, of course, as we go back in time, uh, women's situation conditions, you know, deteriorate, right? So, Mm. uh, modern world has changed everything. That is true. But I really think that Rumi was ahead of his time. Mm. You see, uh, he married his first wife when he was 19 or so, and they had two sons. And when he was a student, his first wife died. And then he married a widow, another, a lady who had a previous husband, but her husband had died. So, uh, and then she had, uh, you know, her own children. So, and then she never, uh, he never married another lady. Uh, so he had a single wife all his, through his life. And, um, In terms of his relationship with Shams himself, um, of course, cultures are different. Um, I personally think that their relationship was a spiritual relationship. Um, And you see, in Sufi tradition, because Rumi was a Sufi poet, there's a practice called sohbat. Mm. Sohbat means conversation, like what we are doing in a way right mm-hmm. now, right? But it's an Arabic word, but it also means companionship. It, it means that when we, when we are having this conversation, we also have very intimate friendship. We are not arguing. We are tr- trying to share what we know. So I think that describes the relationship between Rumi and Shams. So they had this sohbat, companionship and conversation in a very deep spiritual manner. So if I can apply Lucy Maud Montgomery and Anne of Green Gables to to this story, a kindred spirit. Mm. That is absolutely right. Mm. I mean, it was interesting to me to read all these poems about love and feeling like, there's occasional descriptions of skin or, or bodies, but they don't seem either female or male mm-hmm. necessarily. I don't get a really gendered feeling from those descriptions. Um, and, and you know, knowing what I know at least about Western culture, even if you go back 150 years, men's primary relationships are actually with other men. And women's primary relationships are actually with other women, even if— they might be married, right, uh, as they were expected to do. But you have this sense that, you know, the emotional life is in these homosocial relationships, right? Um, and so that's what I'm imagining here for for Shams and for uh, Rumi is that they have this very intense relationship that, I mean, even though we just heard from Kevin saying eh, people were uncomfortable with it, <laughs> they were uncomfortable with it because it was uh, disrupting sort of this lineage. It wasn't because they were two men really engaged with each other. It was more about, you know, the family wants to keep things within the family. Yeah, I will add a few po- co- points to your comments and then uh, maybe Kevin also. You see um, Persian Sufi poetry. Um, was it created a revolution in the thinking of the Middle East. If you go back to Islam and Quran, God is a masculine force. Yeah. Just like in English, right? He, him, etc. Right. So Persian poets, they flip-flop this whole thing. They used feminine features and symbols to describe the beloved. Okay. That was something new. Okay. So it wasn't only Rumi who uses who used uh, these references to, for example, cheek, eyebrow, long hair, even Hafez, mm-hmm. 
even after all the Persian Sufi poets have done. You, it's not unique to Rumi. Can we can we look at an example of that? Is that do you in the book? Yes, please. Okay, <laughs> I ha- I mean I have with um, on page thirty three. It's actually in the section poems on poetry and music, um, and it's just the. And we have to talk about Joseph. Joseph keeps showing up. Oh yeah. Who is Joseph? Oh is yeah. That, is that, you know, Donny Osmond? Is that who we're talking about? Or is <laughs> the, the very same. Okay. The very same. So on 33, we have, My sun and moon has come, my ears and eyes have come. That yes. smooth and argent skin, that mine of gold has come. A dizzy warmth whelmed my head, which I've never seen whelmed before. I was very excited. I'm used to overwhelmed, but this is whelmed. A dizzy warmth whelmed my head, Light lit up my eyes. What else that you could ever ask? That too has come. And then we have like the jasmine-bodied Joseph. Um, We have wildflowers. We have this hug. He cinched me hard in his embrace with both his arms. What a precious belt that gorgeous monarch gave me. Um, We have see his tasty sweet melt rose petal marmalade. Um, So – Drunken eyes. So, in some ways, yeah, I can I can see how these might be feminine, but at the same time, uh, they might they're not so feminine, right? We're not reading about uh, I don't know what in Persian culture is identified as truly feminine. You know, um, that can change from places to place, but you know, we're not reading about breasts or waists or which in the Western context right. that might be something we do. So that's interesting to me. Um. A few points. Um, first, Joseph. Most of the time when Rumi refers to Joseph, it's not so much of his relationship with Zuleikha, the lady. No. It's his relationship with his father, Jacob. Mm. Because Joseph was lost and his father, Jacob, was searching for him. Oh, I see. Yeah. So oftentimes when Rumi uses Joseph it, uh, he refers to that relationship, the su- a suffering father uh, is looking for his son. This is that, actually, that's one. yeah, and I seem to see that in the Abraham-Isaac right. references too. Right. Like one could talk about Isaac in so many different ways, right. uh, all the different stories of him, but it really is about that relationship. And exactly, and also he here he mentions actually the uh, Jasmine about the Joseph. You see this poem, it's a very famous poem. My sun and the moon has come. My ears and eyes have come. Shamsu qamaram amad, sam'u basaram amad. Even a mother can say this poem to a son who is returning. Mm. You see, Persian poetry which is a different from Arabic poetry because in Arabic poetry you have masculine and feminine. Now, in Persian, in English we say he and she, right? In Persian there is no he and she. U is neutral, gender neutral. Mm. So, in fact, it's one of the challenges of translating Rumi or Hafiz or any Persian uh, poetry into English is, I have done it, should I use he or she? I see. Right? In Persian, it doesn't, uh, you would understand it from the context, but but in English, you have to translate into a a gender. Mm -hmm. And that itself kind of distorts the, the essence of the poetry, right? Um, that's really important. That's important. And also Shams, I, I should also mention. So Rumi uses lots of, uh, he uses the word Shams a lot. But you see in a Persian Ghazal sonnet, a poet ends the poem, the last line of a poem with his pen name. Right. Now Rumi chose Shams as his pen name. So oftentimes at the end of the poem when he, not always, but sometimes when he uses, he uses the word Shams, it has nothing to do with Shams. It's his pen name. Mm. So these are some um, complexities that, you know, we need to tackle in translation. Otherwise, they will be misunderstood. If you read Rumi's poetry or the poetry of someone like Ibn Arabi, who was another very famous mystic from medieval Muslim Spain, um, and you take away their name and you just read it 
And it's a poem about, you know, on the surface, about wine um, or about a beautiful boy or a beautiful girl or something like that. And you don't know that it's a mystical poem. Oftentimes you can't tell if it's supposed to be actual wine or if it's a metaphor for something. And there are many who would say that that's the point, that the kind of love that you might have in in a romantic, erotic relationship and the kind of love that you have in a divine, spiritual, completely platonic relationship exist on a spectrum and you can't draw a bright line between them. And so for, especially for Sufis and mystics, that's how they kind of see all of these things. And I want to dig into that more in just a moment. (laughs) You are listening to In Good Faith and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to In Good Faith. It's a book club episode talking about the book Rumi, Swallowing the Sun, translated by Franklin D. Lewis. I just did a quick search on famous Rumi quotes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, there's not time to read yeah. all of the and, the— and most of these are out of context one-liners that get converted to memes. <laughs> and the one that I have seen so many times this year, even before I knew we were having this discussion, for instance— out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. Do not feel lonely. The entire universe is within you. If everything around seems dark, look again. You may be the light. I could go on, and I have a page mm. of 50 of them. I'm, I'm, I'm just going to stop. But one of the aspects that fascinates me so much about what Rumi is talking about is relationship with God. So in Konya, we got to meet with the Sheikh uh, Ahmet Sami Kuchik, who is the head of, I guess, of the whirling dervishes of the, of that particular type of ecstatic worship. And in our conversation with him, he talked for a moment about what he is. I wanted to know what they're pursuing, or maybe they're not pursuing, in the dance, which is the twirling and. There's certain music that goes with it. And at, he said at the one point, and he looked up, and really he looked very ecstatic. He's just saying over and over, Allah, Allah, Allah. Just that it was the name of God that he was somehow bound to and giving him a joy and something transcendent. So I'm wondering, in the West, we don't talk about God as beloved and so attractive and 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 kind of romantic right. sorts of ways. So I love to look back on where he was coming from and just ask about this relationship of the beloved. Yeah, this is a great question. We don't talk about it in uh, mainstream Christianity, but there is a long and rich tradition of Christian mysticism in which this is the case. So Sor Juana de la Cruz, for example, was a uh, Spanish mystic, uh, and she, you know, writes this way about God, you know, about being in love with God. Um, There's a tradition in Hinduism, uh, Shakti, that's kind of the same way, right? Very powerful, that does the same. And this is something I enjoy pointing out to students. The Song of Solomon fits very squarely within this tradition. Ah. Um, and, you know, again, it's it's all sort of erotic, you know, description of the beloved um, but that's all a metaphor for, and even, even, you know, when, when Christ says in the new Testament that, uh, you know, comparing the church to the bride and Christ to the bridegroom, that's a sexual metaphor as much as anything else. Um, so it's there in the tradition, but yeah, it'd be, it'd be especially in Protestant inflected faith traditions. I don't think people talk so about that as in much. In Rumi's time, would people have said, oh yes, or was this eye opening? Like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Do we know? So... God is an abstract word, right? And if you want to take it to its philosophical conclusion, God is unknowable. But we want to approach God. How are we going to approach it? So for Rumi, the best way is through love. The path of love. He's the the poet of the path of love. Why he chose love as the best approach to the divinity, it's because it's most intimate, right? We experience love. 
we we experience love through our family, you know, through spouse, through children, through friends, through nature. The best relationship that we can have without any expectation is love. Right? So that is why Rumi says that the best way to approach God is love. In fact, in his lyrical odes, Qazal uh, sonnets, he rarely mentions the word God. Mm-hmm. Allah or God, he, he rarely uses. Rarely. Not, he uses beloved, friend, life. So those are the words that we can use to approach God in a very intimate way. Every human being has a word for love in their own language. It's very easy Rasul, to, okay. Go ahead. to Go ahead. communicate, to translate, because every human being is basically the same. It's as if, you know, Rumi were meditating constantly on God and thinking about him all the time, like someone who's in love, to the point where he heard God in the coppersmith's hammer or he saw God in nature or in other places too. Um, Another thing this reminds me of is that Rumi said something similar, not about God, but about the Quran and how studying the Quran is like a courtship uh, preparing for marriage and that it doesn't devolve into like one method versus another method, but that it's it's a series of gestures as you're preparing to sort of unite with with the bride or with the word of God. And I couldn't help but notice that when they're whirling, one hand is up to mm. receive from heaven, the other is pointed down. And so I look at a book like this, uh, Swallowing the Sun, and these po- poems, and I think, is this a little bit of that process of, of br- connecting us, bringing something down from, from heaven into the earthly realm? Yeah. And Heather, you had a, a question. Oh, I just had a poem I wanted to look at. So this is... Uh, Gazol 2407, Um, and I just wanted to read a little bit of it. What a banner, what a standard. There is no God but God. Planted on the pinnacle of pre-existence, there is no God but God. How the king, like Moses, raises dust from the sea of being and the void. There is no God but God. The quality of purities modeled on his humility, displayed in God's presence in pre-eternity. There is no God but God. One wrong from him bests a billion rights. What wondrous, pleasant tyranny. There is no God but God. Every spot where he casts his glance, a million Eden gardens grow. There is no God but God. And there's a lot more of that. This stuck out to me because as you've pointed out, um, Russell, there's not a lot of like explicit like doctrinal poems, right? Yeah. And in fact, I wouldn't say there's a ton of doctrine right here, but that repetition mm-hmm. sort of grounds us, right, in the belief system in a way um, that most of the poems don't have. So this poem, I mean, I, this poem seems in fact unique for that reason. Yes, yeah. And plus a poem with banner and standard, suddenly there's a whole tone of like yeah. we are out proclaiming, you know, like we're we're parading here um, our belief and our our sort of joy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other ones, there's so many of them seem actually like on a minor key, like even though I'm experiencing this transcendence, it's a quieter, subtle, uh, maybe subtle is not the right word, but there's something – less like, I mean, this seems like bring out the brass band. Like, we have to talk about (laughs) who God is, you know? But you see, um, religious terms uh, in any religion, you will have all kinds of people. You will have literalists, fundamentalists, you will have clergymen, theologians, politicians, commercial people, Folk people, masses, you know, indifferent uh, people who are hostile to a religion. Now, the same term will have a different meaning to each one of them. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. So in any religion, 
mystics have their own understanding of the terms, which are very different from folk religion or uh, fundamentalists or politicians, etc. So there's no God by God in Rumi's view means that there is only one reality. Mm. In fact, if I want to put it in a context, he believes in Wahdat Wujud, yeah. which Ibn Arabi also claims. Wahdat Wujud means there is only one existence, only one being, and that is God. This universe is like a shadow of a sun. So if the sun is not there, then there is no shadow. So there is no God by God, but God in Rumi's view that there is only one reality. If we understand that, that oneness, and actually it is related to the concept of love, because in Rumi's uh, understanding, true love comes out of this realization of oneness. Mm. You see, if duality is there, then there will be a distance. But if we understand oneness, not only oneness between us, but also oneness with the earth, with the trees, with everything, then out of that oneness, that love will arise, which is, which is not uh, commercial, which is not simply verbal, but it is with our total being. So that was the Rumi's understanding of there is no God by mm. God. And it is related to the to his teaching of love. And just briefly, I have felt several times to say, Russell, that there is a poet hidden inside you. I, I, I'm thinking <laughs> not it's so not hidden. hidden. It's not hidden. Yes. <laughs> That's right. I, I'm I'm learning what a poet you are. Thank you. And that much. that That's helps a, it helps my understanding the way that you're phrasing. That's very nice really. of you. I was just going to say very briefly on page twelve. Um, you know, w- one one thing also to understand about. Rumi that I appreciate that helps me under that helps me see other authors this way is you really have to read that person's entire corpus right um, to really understand because you see just not just the person's progression from maybe their early writings to to later on but also how that corpus like interprets itself how you can read one poem and wonder, you know, what does he mean by there is no God but God, and then find something else where he says, oh, that that could be, you know, one way he's understanding it. So on page 12, this is part of, uh, part of one of the, uh, the, the translated poems. Under the, under the expression, there is no God but God, everything keeps you distant from your quest, whether words of blasphemy or of belief. And that's very confusing. It's very troubling because... You know, this is a, a devout Muslim. And what I think he's trying to get at here is that received notions of religion, received notions of belief, creeds, um, regulations, laws, things like that, anything that you haven't gotten directly from the source leads you from that path. Everything holds you back from the friend, whether images of beauty or of beast. That's a great, a great uh, turn of phrase by, uh, by Frank Lewis. You'll clean no thorn and thistle from this path unless the creedal no serves as your herald, meaning saying no, not just to blasphemy, but also to belief, meaning received forms of belief, anything that's not direct from God. More to your point, Rasul. Well, um, I think we are coming to the end of this, but I just wanted to make a point. You see, um, it's best to read Rumi uh, not so much of in the context of any religion, even Sufism, mysticism, no. Uh, just as, you know, when I want to, I mean, I don't read Shakespeare to understand Christianity, mm. right? So, yeah, that's right. So, might... Rumi was a scholar, mm. a, 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 a preacher, a theologian before he became a poet. So, if he wanted to continue preaching, he could have just continued. He did not become to, uh, a poet to preach, you know, a re- particular religion. No. He had this transformation. He realized divinity. He realized love in his heart. So all these poems are the expressions of his experience. Actually, I believe that his experience was more intense, 
what we are reading is simply a residue of what he had seen, you know, the poetry. And just imagine that if he loved this poetry, just imagine how much more magnificent was that experience itself was. So to read Rumi, uh, Rumi connects us with the source. With, and whether our love is towards our children or our spouses or our nature or our God, the source of loving is the same. As, as uh, Kevin mentioned, there is no uh, rigid boundary between this is a profane, this is, a, you know, sacred. The source of loving in the sense that our ego is not there. So that's very important. If our ego is not there, then that's the true love. That comes from God, that comes from nature, whatever, that comes from our heart. So I think that's the best approach to read Rumi, as a poet of love rather than a particular religion or even a language. I cannot think of a better summation <laughs> for our podcast today. And it seems like that Rumi is almost a state of mind. Mm. And that well, if well we're played. looking for, I, I, Kevin used the word unmediated, that a direct experience with God. And I'm thinking, oh, that's really cool as I read and try to understand. But even reading the poem is a mediation. Mm. I'm reading Rumi's experience, but maybe that puts me in the frame of mind to seek my own unmediated experience and realizations around me. I wish we had more time, but this has been so <laughs> enlightening. Uh, Dr. Rasul Sorkabi, Dr. Kevin Blankenship, Dr. Heather Bigley. Hello. <laughs> and me, Steve. Uh, You're I famous, am, Steve. I am You're thrilled famous. to have had this and been and lucky to be part of this conversation. Thank you all for speaking with us today. In Thank, you. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much you. for the wonderful opportunity, Steve and Heather, as well as Kevin. Thank you. Thank you. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. Find us on Twitter at In Good Faith Pod, on Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.